Good morning. Would you uh, open your Bibles, please, to the book of Numbers, chapter 6. You know, I really think um, the uh, gift of preaching is not uh, to say anything new, necessarily. Actually, that would be a hard thing. I've read the Bible, you've read the Bible, so how could it be that I would tell you something that you do not know? Uh, I really think that the gift of preaching is to uh, speak the words that, uh, that the Lord wants us to hear at that particular time. They may be words that you have heard many times. Nevertheless, uh, the Lord uh, wants them at that particular time. And so uh, if you come to an assembly, that I think is the single most important thing. And that is what... What is it? What is it that you should uh, present? And uh, there's, uh, it's very clear in this assembly, uh, we're going to speak about the Nazarite uh, this morning. We'll speak about the Nazarite this evening. And uh, next Sunday morning, too, we'll try to bring that to a uh, conclusion. Uh, the law of the Nazarite, it's a very... Uh, thing it's uh, something that you can easily apply to your own heart as a Christian if you're at the beginning of a, a new year here and you're looking around for a new year's resolution why not just consider taking the vow of a Nazarite and uh, the vow is given here in Numbers chapter 6 where we read uh, in verse 1 the Lord spoke to Moses saying speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when either a man or woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. So this was a vow. It was a voluntary vow. It could be taken by any man. It could be taken by any woman. You didn't have to be a priest. You didn't have to be associated with any holy order in the nation of Israel. It was just a vow that anyone could take. It was a vow that didn't have to go the rest of your life. You just took it for a period of time. But uh, what was important, I think, uh, to us in, uh, in verse 2 is it was the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. See, that's a good vow to take. Maybe at the beginning of this year you're saying to yourself, well, I take a vow, I'm going to read the Bible through this this year. Uh, that would be a good vow. Or I'm going to learn more of the Bible. There are portions of the Bible uh, I haven't really read yet, and I'm going to learn more. That would be a good vow. But uh, as you look at the difficulties in your Christian life, I don't think that the difficulties arise from the fact that you don't know enough Bible. You may not have read the Bible through, but you know enough in order to live a victorious Christian life. The difficulty is that you really don't get the use out of the knowledge of the Bible that you know. And uh, uh, the vow of the Nazarite was not necessarily to learn something more about the Lord, but to take a vow that I am going to draw near to the Lord. Look at verse 2 that the vow was to separate yourself to the Lord. That would be a wonderful vow that uh, this year I'm going to walk closer with the Lord Jesus Christ. This year, 
would be a wonderful vow to take. And as I say, any man could take it, any woman could take it. It was a voluntary thing, and uh, it was given by Moses through uh, the Lord through Moses in Numbers chapter 6. So it was uh, a vow that a Jew could take. Now, just consider the Jew for a moment here in Numbers chapter 6. He's been brought out of the land of Egypt by the blood of a lamb. That's the Passover. And he understands that he is delivered out of Egypt. He is saved out of Egypt. And he does not have to serve Pharaoh anymore. And that's a wonderful thing for a Christian to realize. I don't have to serve Satan anymore. Jesus Christ has set me free from that. Furthermore, God has taken him, not only redeemed him from the judgment of God, but taken him out of Egypt altogether and through the Red Sea. And now they have uh, on their way to a new land. And as they go through the wilderness, they come to this mountain of Sinai. Just, just three months after they leave Egypt, they are at the mountain of Sinai. They're going to spend a year there. God has them build the tabernacle. God gives them the Ten Commandments. God gives them the ordinances and judgments that he wants them to know. He displays his righteousness to them. So if you're a Jew, you are learning about this God who delivered you. You're learning about him by leaps and bounds. Now, God says through Moses, now if you still want to come closer, see? If you still want to come closer to me, then you can take the vow of a Nazarite. And I think it would be a good thing uh, if a man were to say, yes, I'm going to take a vow as it is to draw closer to the things of the Lord. Just keep your place there and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes on this uh, matter of taking vows. I don't know whether or not you take a vow or whether... In your prayers, you promise anything before God. But taking a vow in the Bible is a very common thing. People took vows before the Lord. And I myself think it's a good thing for a Christian to take a vow before the Lord. It gives you a definite goal. You're working towards something. If the Lord be not come at the end of the year, I want to be uh, at this point with the Lord. But look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 1, where it says, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God. Walk carefully when you come into the presence of the Lord. And draw near to hear rather than give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. When God characterizes a fool in the Bible, he characterizes one who does a lot of talking but not much listening. God wants you to come into the house of God and listen and measure your words. Verse 2, do not be rash with your mouth. Don't say things to God that you really don't intend to fulfill. Let not your heart utter anything hasty before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And look at verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. You know, actually, you think about the way you converse with uh, the people you meet in the world. 
And many times when we talk to people, we just say the things that are convenient, you know. Uh, things that are not going to make them upset. Uh, yes, this is the way I explain this situation. And it may be the whole truth or maybe a half truth. But we learn to sort of... Uh, just sort of uh, guard our speech in a way and uh, say whatever, uh, whatever I can get away with as I talk to one another. But God is above all that. You can't con God. You can't take a vow before God and not mean it. Then if you do that, God says, you're just a fool before me. If you talk to the Lord, you should mean it. If you pray to the Lord, you should mean it should mean it because you're talking to someone who knows your heart. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. It is better not to vow than to vow and not pay, right? I mean, if you cannot, uh, if you have no intention of fulfilling this, then don't bother saying it to God because actually uh, you're just going down the wrong street with him. So the vow of a Nazarite was a serious thing. I am going to separate myself unto the Lord uh, in the hope that I will please the Lord. The vow of the Nazarite. It has nothing to do with coming from Nazareth. There was a city in the Bible that was Nazareth. You don't read about Nazareth until the children of Israel have crossed the River Jordan and they're in the land and they divide up the land and now all of a sudden the city of Nazareth appears and the Lord Jesus Christ, he was brought up in that city. He was born in Bethlehem but brought up in Nazareth so he was called the Nazarene. That's got nothing to do with the Nazarite. We're talking about Nazarites here. And uh, you may have never seen the city of Nazareth all, at all. Uh, far from being a Nazarene, but you can be a Nazarite before the Lord. The vow was uh, three things. First, you would separate yourself from the fruit of the vine. You would not drink wine or anything of the fruit of the vine. Uh, look at verse 2. Uh, when he consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. Now, wine in the Bible is not described of as anything which is wrong. I mean, if a Christian does not drink wine, it's not that he's condemning that wine is evil. In the Bible, wine is used for the joy of this world. The joy of this world. As a matter of fact, in the offerings of the nation of Israel, there was a drink offering where you offered wine before the Lord as part of your sacrificial uh, offering. Uh, the reason why a Christian would abstain from wine, the reason why a Nazarite abstains from wine, is that he wants to give the message that my joy is not the joy of the world, that I'm looking for a greater joy than that. It isn't that he's condemning wine. He's just saying the joy I seek is not a joy just from having a glass of wine or the joys of the world or much less the pleasures of sin. He's not going to get any satisfaction out of that. But he is going to seek for the joy of the Lord. 
look, uh, just keep your place and turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, where the Lord Jesus Christ uh, spoke to them. In verse 11, this was the night before the Lord was crucified. Or actually, you know in the Bible, the day begins in the evening. So this is the day the Lord was crucified. I mean, the night before, that was the day that he would be crucified. That was that same 24-hour period. He says in verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy shall remain in you, and that your joy might be full. And that's what we're looking for. It's a great deal of difference whether you have joy in the Lord or joy in the world. The joy of the world is something which is fleeting. As a matter of fact, we don't even use the word joy much for the things of the world. We talk about happiness. Happiness is something that comes as a result of happenings, you know. The when you win the lottery, you're going to be happy. But that's not uh, an eternal joy. As a matter of fact, that can bring you a lot of problems, family problems and everything else. But the joy of the Lord, that's a lasting thing. That's an eternal thing. And when a person receives the Holy Spirit of God and the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace. Those are things that you cannot get from the Lord, uh, from the world. And these are things that the Nazarite reaches out for. So the Nazarite was to not drink of the fruit of the grape. And the second thing is in verse 5, all the days of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head. Well, actually, you're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul speaks about hair as a covering, as a symbol of submission. It speaks about uh, a woman's hair that she shows by her hair that she is in submission to the Word of God and to her husband. And to her husband. And uh, so I take that, I take the hair as a sign of covering, as a sign of submission, that the Nazarite, more than any other, would be in submission to the Lord. You know, the Lord Jesus, there's no verse in the New Testament that says the Lord took the vow of a Nazarite. There's no mention of how long his hair was or uh, that there was no razor that ever cut his hair. But if you read the words of the Lord, they are words of submission. Uh, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. You see, those are the words of a Nazarite. And then in verse uh, uh, 6, all the days he separates himself, he shall not go near a dead body. Well, death is the result of sin. He's not going to deal with sin. He's going to keep himself away from sin. Verse 7, he will not make himself unclean even for his father or mother. He loves his father and mother. But in accordance with his vow, he will not he will not touch his father and mother in death. He will go to extremes in order to keep himself unspotted. You know, there's a great verse in the Bible in the book of James 
James chapter 1 and verse 27 that you might want to take or that you might want to read with me. James 1 verse 27 where James says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, most of the time in the Bible, the word religion is an evil word. Most of the time in the Bible, the word religion is something made up by man. The religion of the scribes, the religion of the Pharisees. The Lord wanted more from his people than the religion of the Pharisees. Here, when he uses the word religion, it's good. He puts the word pure in front of it and undefiled behind it. Pure religion and undefiled. That's what I'm talking about. What is it? To keep oneself unspotted from the world. I mean, a Christian cannot be uh, enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season and all the time feeling that he's walking a separate path before the Lord. Sin was something to be dealt with and the wages of sin or the product of sin was something that he would not come into contact with. Uh, there are some very uh, famous Nazarites. John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Samson was a Nazarite. Samuel was a Nazarite. And uh, maybe uh, next Sunday morning, uh, after a few verses, I'll ask you whether you think the Lord Jesus Christ was a Nazarite or not. And uh, maybe give you some uh, verses where even though he does not take the vow of a Nazarite, nevertheless, he can be a Nazarite in his heart. You know, if you take the vow of a Nazarite, it doesn't mean you don't go to the barber or something. <laughs> you know, it just means that you are going to separate yourself in your heart before the Lord. Look at Luke chapter 1, and we'll talk about John the Baptist. He was uh, perhaps the most famous Nazarite. I know Samson is uh, of great appeal, but uh, John the Baptist was far greater than Samson. Look at the Gospel according to John and uh, the announcement of the coming of John into the world. The angel is speaking to... Um, I'm sorry, the Gospel of Luke. Excuse me. The Gospel of Luke chapter 1. The angel is speaking to Zacharias, who is the father of John the Baptist. He says in verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zacharias. Your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. John was named by the Lord. That's an interesting devotional spirit. How many people in the Bible were named by the Lord? And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. The birth of John the Baptist was going to be a real cause for celebration because John was going to introduce the Messiah. Verse 15, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. The Lord doesn't say much about that uh, with other men, you know. There are not many men in the Bible that God says are great 
John the Baptist was great in the sight of the Lord. And here's the vow, shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And so here is John the Baptist. He's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. You know, one of the things uh, as you study the Bible among or among Christians is that John, I think, is not as great as he should be, you know. Um, uh, he was the one who was given an unimaginable honor. He was going to introduce the Lord Jesus Christ to the world. I mean, what sort of honor is that? It's an honor that no one had, no one else had. Look at Matthew chapter 11 where the Lord Jesus speaking about John the Baptist. Matthew 11, verse 11. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there hath not arisen one greater than John the Baptist. So he was great. He was a man who was great in the sight of the Lord. He was a man dedicated to serving the Lord. In the sight of the Lord, he was a great man. He was a great man. I mean, surely if the world, if you said in the world, list the ten greatest men that ever lived in the world, the world wouldn't even think of John the Baptist. But when you think about it, there was no one greater than John. There was no one who pointed the finger at the one who would come after him and say he is the son of God, the redeemer of the world. No one had that kind of greatness. Moses couldn't do that. David couldn't do that even though they were great in their own way. Uh, Abraham couldn't do that, but John could do that. Meanwhile, even though John is great, look at uh, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11, when John has not arisen a greater than John the Baptist, but on one occasion, John compares himself to the Lord Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11, he said, I baptize you with water unto repentance. He, capital H, He, the Messiah, who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. I mean, that's a, you know, people would say of John, you're great. And John would say, the one who's coming after me, I'm not worthy to tie his shoes. Now, that's good the way for a Christian to think about the Lord like that, you know. Sometimes it's uh, Jesus and I, Jesus and I. But it's good when we get to uh, worship the Lord, you know. John said, I am not even worthy to tie his shoes. Well, look at the gospel according to John. The gospel according to John, of course, when you say the gospel according to John, that's the apostle John. But look at verse 3 where John the Baptist speaks in the, in the gospel according to John. And he speaks about this vow that he took. In John chapter 3 and verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. But I have been sent before him. John preached with such power that thousands of people went out to be baptized by John in the River Jordan. 
thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And so the thought would naturally be, well, John must be the Messiah. And John doing his ministry, he would have to refute that over and over. No, I'm not the Christ. I'm the one who's going to come before the Christ. And then he describes his position in verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. Well, that's the Lord Jesus. He comes as the bridegroom. He comes for his bride. He comes for his church. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. See, that's a great secret in Christianity. If you can find your fulfillment in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. If your joy can be linked to the fulfillment, the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't that John's joy is going to be because he is doing a successful thing over here. John is going to get his joy when he sees the exaltation of his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know the... Uh, that's the way you're going to get your joy, right? Uh, one day we will see uh, the stone that the builders rejected shall be made the head of the corner. That's the 118th Psalm. And we will say, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad therein, you know. I mean, uh, you can talk about the joy that you're going to have going into heaven and uh, so on. But I think the day, that day that will break your heart with joy is when you see the Lord exalted to his proper place. And nothing will equal that. And John says, I'm the friend of the bridegroom and I just wait for the exaltation of the bridegroom. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase. I must decrease. See, that's Nazarite thought. That's Nazarite thought. If you underline your Bible, that's a good verse to underline. Uh, I know sometimes it doesn't mesh with our psyche, right? I mean, we want to be up there. We want to be noticed. We want to be honored. Uh, we would like to increase in honor. Do you want to increase in honor? Then honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, let me show you that. Look at the Gospel according to John for a moment, chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 26. If anyone serves me, the Lord Jesus is speaking. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. See, that, that goes with it. If you want to be a disciple of the Lord, then you follow the Lord. And where I am, there my servant will be also. That's a precious thing, isn't it? And if anyone serves me, him will my father honor so, you know, in the world, if you want to be honored, then you've got to find a way to call attention to yourself. You've got to write a letter or get a patent or, 
or uh, publish a book, uh, you know, publish or perish. Uh, you've got to raise your hand in the classroom. You've got to uh, have people say, yeah, there's an energetic fellow. He's surely to get ahead. Uh, if you're a Christian, you don't have to impress your boss. He knows all about you. He knows all about you. All you have to do is just quietly exalt your Savior. And if you exalt your Savior, God the Father will look upon you and he will say, there is a man that honors my son and I will honor him. And if God the Father decided to honor you, then what would that mean to you? I mean, I, I think you'd have no trouble being honored in the assembly, be no trouble uh, uh, just, just enjoying uh, the spiritual blessings that would surround you. If any man serves me, my father will honor him. Meanwhile, he must increase, but I must decrease. You know, that's a wonderful uh, thing. Let me just... Uh, close with some words of the Lord Jesus in 1 Peter uh, which are when you read them you'll say these are Nazarite vows these are Nazarite words even though as I say there is no verse in the Bible that says the Lord took this vow but he certainly did in his heart 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21 for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. So the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross is my example. That's a hard example. I mean, we would say, well, the Lord Jesus in his life, there are many examples. But on the cross, it's hard to take an example from the cross. When we see the Lord on the cross, we just step back and worship, you know. I mean, there's nothing that I can identify in the cross. He is paying for my sin. I can't pay for any man's sin, right? No man by any means can redeem his brother for the redemption of the soul is too costly. You know, that is his work, his work alone. But the Bible says, nevertheless, he teaches us even there. For to this you were called, because Christ suffered for us, leaving an example that we should follow in his steps. Well, what is that example? Verse 23, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him. See, capital H there, to his father who judgeth righteously. I mean, the Lord is God the Father's servant. And during that time, when all the false accusations fell upon him, how easy it would have been for the Lord to just reach out and strike back. Sometime during that uh, judgment, a soldier walked up to him and spit in his face. The Lord could have just banished him to the 
to the lake of fire forevermore or called one angel. Take him and throw him into the lake of fire. The Lord doesn't do that. He does not do that. When he is reviled, he does not revile in return. You know, Christians still have that tendency, right? If you smite me, I'm going to make a fist and, and smite you back. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judgeth righteously. He just committed it unto his father. That is the great weapon of a Nazarite, isn't it? That as you seek to serve the Lord, whatever comes down the path, you just commit it unto your father. Sometimes, many times, Christians just make Christianity so personal to their honor that it is unsettling, you know. They become offended in this assembly, so they go to that assembly or so, you know. Uh, their feelings are hurt or no one is listening to them or such that they want to be recognized, they want to be honored. Well, that's, that's understandable. But the Nazarite, when he wanted to be honored, he said, I want to be honored of God. I want God to honor me. And therefore, I will become completely obedient. I will seek my joy in the Lord. And I will abstain as much as I can from sin upon this world. And God will bless me. John the Baptist was a great man. He must increase. And I must decrease. That's Christianity. In a sense, Christianity deals a lot with your salvation. But in another sense, Christianity is not about you. It's about him, right? And when we gather together at the previous meeting, our intention is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. The only reason in breaking a bread for a man to stand up and speak is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. He must increase and I must decrease. Can we look to the Lord? Our precious Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We just pray that uh, we may understand more and more that meaning of that verse. That we may be servants of the Lord, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That no matter what, that we are just faithful to Him, seeking to please Him. And Lord, we thank you that our Heavenly Father will see that and he will honor us for that. We commit ourselves to thee this morning in his precious name. Amen.